The sponsor for this episode is the publisher Rootledge. They publish a wide range of books for pre- and in-service teachers, teacher educators, and educational researchers. Go to their website to find a lot of books and resources. It's rootledge.com. Welcome to this month's edition of Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I have, as usual, conducted an interview with a researcher in the area of leadership in this uh, field. I hope you enjoy the interview. So I am at the University of Portsmouth, and uh, with me is uh, Professor Chris Brown. And um, yeah, so he's actually a second time person I will interview. Um, yeah, and he has done some interesting uh, things on networks uh, for learning, and that's going to be our subject today. Um, Chris, let me first start with that you call it a PLN. What does a PLN stand for? So it's a professional learning network. So when I'm talking about networks, what I mean is uh, that we're taking people from different schools or different um, kind of stakeholder groups, such as uh, academics or researchers, or maybe even people from um, kind of bodies that are interested in schools, so social services or police. And we're bringing people, certain people together from those groups to come together as a network and to engage in uh, kind of learning activity to help improve children's outcomes. So these can be both horizontal and kind of vertical collaborators? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what typically when we've been looking at professional learning networks, we have been uh, looking at the membership of those networks and often it's it's teachers and also school leaders. Um, but as you say, it can be um, kind of horizontal in the sense that you've got kind of uh, other people from um, similar schools or, or other schools that come together, but also uh, vertical in the sense that you, you may have policymakers or other people with completely different disciplinary backgrounds because they bring something else they bring different knowledge different types of learning into the mix and is the head teacher and the school are they always kind of the the organizer and the lead in this PLM um not necessarily but leadership support is absolutely vital um I mean certainly a lot of the PLNs that uh operate here for example research learning uh, networks or learning communities they're facilitated by someone external so they might be facilitated by a researcher or an academic uh, certainly in, in the Netherlands you've got data teams and again uh, you will have someone external um, possibly from a university bringing those um, bringing those things together but what's important is that school leaders are fully supportive because to make a learning network effective to make it work properly 
you need to have an effective two-way link between any given school and the network itself. You need the school leader to be able to support participation within the network from teachers within their school uh, on, and or possibly participation themselves. But you also need to have school leadership support to help the learning that, and the kind of practice development that occurs in the network move back into the school it needs to be brokered effectively so that everybody in the school then starts to understand engage improve and embed that type of learning is there is there kind of a good size of a network does it kind of have any outer limits i think that's a really interesting question the benefits of having more Uh, people participate, more groups participate in the network, is that they bring in different knowledge types, different experiences. So if we think about the processes that typically underplay the learning in networks, normally that's kind of uh, the, the process of knowledge creation, which if we think about um, Nanaka and Takuchi, involves people coming together to make explicit their practical knowledge, to then engage other forms of knowledge either either other practical forms of knowledge or research knowledge and then to use that to develop something and the more knowledge types you have coming in uh, the more people can draw on uh, kind of uh, diverse perspectives or perspectives that they've not yet come across obviously uh, you don't want things too big because it needs to be facilitated you need to have people engage with each other so probably the biggest group I've worked with in a network is probably about 30 but I've done it as small as kind of 8 to 10 uh, and I guess between those sizes you know it does seem to be effective at, at that level and, and, and when we have a PLN is it kind of uh, physical meetings between people is it digital platform meetings or is it other stuff that's a really interesting question so uh, myself and, and colleagues including Pierre Tulevitsky at the uh, University of Ludwigsburg have, have just put in a, a kind of bid to look at whether social media can form professional learning networks you know do people get that quality of learning quality of engagement through engage uh, through using twitter or through facebook um, so that's a question that we're still exploring i mean in theory you know it would seem possible that you'd have digital networks uh, but what we're interested in is is whether the quality of the interaction whether the quality of, of the learning that takes place Uh, matches that of face to face so if I think about the um, the networks that feature in, in the book we've just written about this um, you know and we've got case studies from um, Canada uh, Sweden Netherlands New Zealand Germany Austria in the majority of cases uh, those um, networks are face to face and they come together um you know, a regular uh, kind of set-up meetings to meet. Um, the one exception to that is Austria, where um, there was a, also a kind of a virtual network set up alongside the face-to-face, -face, but that was a kind of complementary network, really. Um, so to date, it mostly seems to be face-to-face, um, -face, but, you know, th there's no su suggesting that's always going to be the case. And and before the interview, Chris, we talked about that a network PLN could be many kind of small schools maybe joining up together. Uh, but now you also talk about that there can be other institutions. And um, am I right when it's kind of it could be the social services department, the mm. early childhood? Mm. We, yeah, I mean, if we think about um, some of the the area based 
uh, PLNs in Germany, what, uh, what the Germans call educational landscapes. Uh, typically, we're looking at both formal and informal education, as well as other other kind of services around the child, so to speak. That absolutely, if, if there's a need, if there's a need for that, if there's a need to address particular local problems by bringing in external agencies such as social services, absolutely. But I think it depends on the problem that, that, that's faced by the schools. So, you know, many of the small schools uh, we have that I work with, so often typically situated in the New Forest in the south of England, um, we, we, we tend to just bring together researchers and teachers because it's about um, kind of practice innovation. But it, it depends on the kind of context and the problem that's being faced by the schools. Uh, yeah, so in, in, in a PLC, professional learning community, the teaching, the pedagogy, the didactics is very much in focus. When it's a PLN, professional learning network, is it kind of the same focus on the learning as in a PLC? I think, I mean, for, for us, the relationship between uh, the PLN and a, and a PLC is that PLCs typically happen within schools. They're typically uh, whole school communities that come together. If we look at what Louise Stoll and other people say, it's about um, that kind of process of building together a trusting collegial relationship uh, where everybody's responsible uh, for the learning of every child in that, in that school. With a PLN... Um, What we're trying to do is to tap into a diverse range of experiences so that we can help teachers develop new and interesting ideas. But then those typically need to feed back into the community of practice or the PLC that exists within the school, who then need to embrace that um, innovation and employ that innovation. So really, it's, it's a way, in my mind, it's a way of... Uh, helping teachers uh, engage with ideas and solutions to tackle problems that, you know, by themselves they they may not be able to do. So it's kind of helping teachers tackle the challenges that are kind of too great for one school to tackle by itself. And is it both kind of issues in relation to uh, teaching and learning and kind of issues with um, pupils' well-being and stuff like that? Yeah, typically. I mean, it, it, again, it, it, it simply depends on context. So most of the uh, PLNs that I work with here, it's, it's, it's more or less teaching or learning. But if you look across the piece, if you look across Europe, depending on what the issues are they're trying to address, sometimes it could be well-being as well as teaching and learning uh, or predominantly well-being. Um, so really, these things are... Uh, You know, you have to set out by saying, well, what's the problem? What's the focus area we want to address and how are we going to address that? Uh, and then, um, you, you know, you go typically across the piece, most PLNs go through this cycle of inquiry by saying, well, what's our vision? What are we trying to achieve? Where are we trying to get to? What's our baseline? Where are we now? How can we close that gap between where we are and now and where we want to get to? Putting in place initiatives and um, kind of refining those as well as seeing whether we've had impact. So really that kind of problem definition is just totally dependent on context. And and um, in a PLN, when you are working together like this, you are saying that could be, there could be from eight till 30 people. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe take one PLN that you have maybe started or been... Um, observing and kind of explain so what are two is it a monthly meeting mm -hmm. fortnightly meeting and what do they actually talk about and what do they do in these meetings 
So if I take the, the PLN type I'm most familiar with, which is kind of research learning networks, typically, actually, uh, those groups only meet four times a year. Uh, and each of those meetings is a part of the um, a kind of cycle of inquiry that, that's required to go through. So they'll be facilitated by a researcher or, or um, someone from outside. Uh, in the first workshop, it's about kind of establishing what everybody in that room knows about the problem. So if it's growth mindsets or feedback, say, you know, what is great practice in terms of growth mindsets or feedback? What does the research say about growth mindsets or feedback? Where would we like to get to as schools? Uh, and then they have homework tasks where they go away and they share the research with the rest of their schools, their, their community of practice. They gather data on the here and now picture. And then they bring that data back to the second workshop. And the second workshop is about developing an intervention. So saying, OK, let's firm up where we are now. Let's firm up the baseline picture. Um, let's remembering the research and the practical uh, knowledge we engage with in workshop one let's um, develop an intervention and then we look at how you trial interventions and um, we, we kind of typically look at forms of joint practice developments lesson study learning walks observations and we say okay how can you trial this practice with colleagues back in your school so they they go back and they try something out and they test something out in a different you know in a variety of different situations with different children they come back to workshop three and we say, they say, how well has that happened? You know, what, what, what might need to be changed? And then we look at whole school change. And this is the leadership piece. And I know, you know, I know you're interested in, in leadership as much as I am. But if, if we want to roll anything out, people need to know how to be you know, leaders. So we look at um, change management. We look at adopter types. We look at um, kind of social networks and how they operate within school. Uh, we also talk about theories of action and we get the um, participants to then develop a change management plan. They go back into their school, they enact that change management plan. Uh, and then in the fourth workshop, it's about data. So they bring kind of data of their impact to that workshop and we look at how they've, they've made an impact. But I think what's important is, you know, who you have in the room. And, you know, across our kind of case study work on PLNs, you know, who you have in those networks is vital. And certainly for the ones that I work with, you know, formal leadership is vital. You need to have formal school leaders in the room because they're the ones that can make things happen through, you know, that kind of transformational learning centre uh, power. But also we try to make sure that we have what we call opinion formers. And opinion formers are... Um, those, if we look at social networks and social network analysis, those are the ones who are the kind of at the centre of webs of, of social capital. They're the ones that can influence, that they can draw on resources of others, that can push out new ideas to others. And we try and get those people involved as well, so that we have people who can galvanise support in the staff room, and we also have people that can make things happen um, by, through their formal leadership authority. So if we. So if we talk about the PLN, which is a research learning network, mm -hmm. will it be voluntary to kind of um, uh, take a part in this uh, uh, research learning network? Yeah, absolutely. There's no compulsion on schools to do it. We, you know, schools have to want to think, actually, we have improvements to make to our practice. We have changes we need to put in place. Um, 
and we'd like to learn with others how to do that. Um, so yeah, it's you know, there's, it's not a kind of government scheme, or it's not mandated by the government. Or, and, uh, but, but but for the teachers themselves, mm. are they voluntarily kind of stepping up to this, or or will the head teacher demand that certain people participate? I mean, t- typically, I think, yeah, it has to be voluntary. Otherwise, they won't want to do it. They won't want to engage. Uh, it, It normally is something that the kind of school has signed up to and, and, and teachers are happy to do it. But yeah, the, if they don't want to engage, then it's not going to work as effectively as it could do. So. And if we then talk about, um, yeah, so what you are normally doing, the research learning network, and then kind of the wider concept of a PLN, um, Are, are there are there kind of specific threats to the PLN which mm. are more generic, mm. or is there like half of the knowledge of the PLN which is kind of down to what sort of network it is, and then fifty percent generic knowledge, or what what is the kind of the setup of the knowledge in the PLN? I mean, I think, so that's a really interesting point. So in terms of my role or the role of facilitators generally, I mean, with the Research Learning Network, you're taking people through a process of learning and actually learning is is a complicated thing to make happen. So you're designing protocols and tools to help people um, kind of set out what they know, protocols and tools to help them engage with research. You need to find and present research in a way that's accessible, you know, so there's not necessarily academic journals, but maybe you've done a literature review. You need to bring in other resources. I mean, often we use Lego and other tools and props to help teachers sense make, you know, they've got data in, but how can they kind of envisage what this is saying about their school? So the role of the facilitators is absolutely vital, I think. But I also think, I mean, more generally, your, your question about the kind of knowledge and whose knowledge. Typically, I see, um, you know, research use as as being something like a uh, lamppost, not a signpost. So it's something teachers should use to illuminate new directions for them. Um, so we also use theories of action to help teachers kind of marry together their own knowledge and um, research knowledge in order to say, well, I think this approach is going to work and these are the reasons I think it's going to work and some of those reasons will come through research and some of those reasons will come through their their own knowledge. But I think the most poignant question you raise is about the, um, you know, the dangers or the pitfalls of, of PLNs and I think sustainability is tricky and I think sustainability depends on there being adequate resources because you know if you think about just the example of um, research learning networks these require you know one one whole day workshop for two people from each school so that requires um, a financial commitment and the financial commitment in, in this day and age you know we've got declining budgets for schools um, means that that schools have to be confident of the benefits. Um, typically, I find they do work best with facilitations. So, you know, there's a financial cost involved in, in, in facilitation too. Um, but you also need to make sure that teachers, you know, can collaborate meaningfully and help and support them collaborate meaningfully in, in the workshops, help them broker knowledge back to their home schools and what, you know, what does it mean to be effective brokering. You, you need to help and work with school leaders to, to work in a kind of um, a networked way because it's not always a, a skill set that the school leaders you know, understand how to do. And I've just been doing some interviews with school leaders about what they anticipate they'll need to have to do if they're going to make the, the PLN work for their school. And, you know, a lot of them do have the understanding that actually, you know, it's going to be 
freeing up time, the financial cost of that, helping school um, participants broker. But, you know, some of the actions that they're talking about, how they can achieve that, you know, sometimes you think, well, actually, is, is that actually going to work? You know, will that lead to knowledge being shared between the, the um, network and the school? And, and so there's a kind of capacity building element, I think, for, for school leaders to, to say this is what effective networked working looks like if you want to uh, maximise the benefits to your school. And if we have a large school, let's say 800... 1,000 pupils. Mm. Uh, is it possible to establish a PLN just for that school? I mean, typically, we in, in our definition of the book, we, we talk about teachers coming out of their everyday communities of practice. Because I think in, in such such schools, you've got departments and, you know, um, you've got hierarchical levels. And sometimes those hierarchical levels and departments don't interact. So in many ways, we can think of a large school comprising a PLN and and... The idea is you you know you could get one or two different people from science, from humanities, from arts, and whatever, uh, you know, the leadership, and bring them together, and that would count as a PLN in, in, in our opinion. So absolutely. Mm. How uh, if if we now focus on the head teachers? So in a normal PLN, will he be kind of appointed as the formal leader, or will there be other people leading it, or what is kind of your, or the research mm. suggestion? I think, I mean, the so there's a couple of things. Obviously, you want to try and break down hierarchies within the learning network. Um, the, the purpose, really, for having school leader involvement is that it keeps it top of mind. It makes sure that there's commitment. It makes sure that when the... Uh, kind of at the end of the PLN when the teachers go back to their schools that action carries on and you've got this kind of notion of sustainability um, but yeah within w- within you know PLN sessions themselves I mean typically the facilitator leads in that sense and the, and the head teacher is providing their knowledge and if the reason part of the reason we use tools part of the reason we use props is that it does help to break down hierarchies because you can use a kind of medium a different medium you know a Lego brick or something to say well this represents my opinion and my understanding of the world and that therefore helps you negotiate in a way that you know when you've got two people sitting down without those tools and props and the leader says well I think it's this you feel less comfortable to say well that's you know that's not my view but if you're kind of using a model as a proxy and you're saying well this is this is what happens in my classroom it becomes a lot easier to negotiate uh, those kind of power differentials so ideally we we want people to be working as equals uh, but each person has their role to play when they go back into the school I'll just have to understand this. So when you talk about Lego, mm. so you will kind of build a model of a classroom and then you will uh, put kind of the students or the pupils in place and the teacher. And yeah, exactly. So what, what, it's, what it's useful for is, is when after the second workshop, the um, teachers bring back their data uh, and saying this is the situation you know, we're, we're currently facing in terms of, uh, for example, feedback or growth mindsets. And we use the Lego in two ways. One to say, well, let's build a physical depiction of the problem. Let's look exactly what's happening, you know, who we think the kind of key actors are, what we think the barriers might be, um, whether we think there are kind of geographical or cultural issues or structural issues. And then later on in that same workshop, we also use the Lego to say, well, you know, how might a, a solution work? How is it going to, inter- you know, how will people be interacting differently or how might we be changing the physical environment? So, yeah, it becomes it becomes that kind of tool that's... Um, that can be used. Hmm. And um, 
it, you know, teachers love it actually. They really, really enjoy working in that way, um, especially the primary teachers. It's really interesting. Sometimes you kind of look at their faces and they're like, um, you know, what are we going to be doing here? And actually, by the end of it, and I've run these sessions in the States. I'm also doing a, um, uh, a learning network in, in, in the States right now in Boise and Idaho and you know we, we, we use something similar there and again uh, without fail all of the schools all of the teachers absolutely loved it and absolutely engaged with it mm. yeah and then if we move to the book uh, Chris at the end of the interview so so you have edited a book together with Cindy Portman it's called Networks for Learning Uh, yeah, I know this is a tough question, but if if can can you draw draw out any kind of big conclusions from this? Yeah, absolutely. Book? So um, Cindy's my colleague from the University of Twente, and and we pulled together case studies from around the world of PLNs with an idea to understand what what do we need to know about PLNs in order to make them sustainable. And there's there's kind of six key characteristics really. I mean, you've got leadership. You know, effective leadership. You've got effective collaboration. You've got um, making sure that there's a clear focus for the PLN that everybody's coming together with the same understanding of what it's about. That you've got learning. Um, you know, kind of group and individual learning. Um, you've got effective knowledge brokerage. So there, you know, there are key issues there that that we need to think about, and that's then going to form the basis of kind of future research plans, really. So, as I said, I've been looking at um, in, you know leadership in, in kind of professional learning networks here. Um, I was actually meeting Cindy yesterday in, in Antwerp, and um, we kind of looked at um, how. You know, we need to start thinking about the kind of brokerage side of things. So, actually, you know, it's it's it, it, it's absolutely key now that we start tackling those um, those kind of six issues. So. Oh. Thank you very much, Chris. Time is actually running out. Um, is there some final thoughts, final things you want to say? Just quickly on on PLNs. I mean, we we are. Um, you know currently looking to collaborate with more people in this area we've got a book series coming up so please do get into contact if you have ideas for things you might want to write about but i think you know this is a this is a kind of subject area that's coming of age um and i think it's if we want to do the best for our children we want to do the best for our schools this is kind of the focus area we need to concentrate on Uh, yeah, and at the very end, Chris. So, if if some of my listeners want to kind of read which publications you have published and what you're working on, where can they go on the internet to find information? Um, well, actually, all my, all my books are listed on Amazon. But um, if you look at my uh, University of Portsmouth page, there should also be um, journal articles that you can download from there. So that's um, uh, yeah, Chris Brown at the University of Portsmouth. Thank you for listening to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I hope you have enjoyed the interview and that you have gained some new insights into leadership. I hope that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. A new podcast is being published on the first of every month. 
You are also welcome to join us on Facebook. There is a group called Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. If you just type in the name of the podcast in the search field in Facebook, you will find the group. Once again, thanks for listening and bye-bye.